This is the business of sports. Should Major League Baseball shorten up the season? How do we present football to the audience of the future? I don't think that most players understand the power that they have. Michael Barr. The future of IndyCar racing is looking bright. Scott Soshnick. Very basic math here. More bidders means more money. Evan Novi williams The team value has essentially quadrupled. And the leaders in the sports industry. Time to bring in our guest, Hal Steinbrenner. National Hockey League Commissioner Gary Bettman. Atlanta Braves President Derek Schiller. Patriots President Jonathan Kraft. Bloomberg Business of Sports. From Bloomberg Radio. Hello, I'm Evan Novi williams And I'm Scott Soshnick. Every week at this time, plus Mondays, Wednesdays, we explore the big money issues in the world of sports. Today, we're speaking with NBC horse racing analyst Randy Moss about the business of thoroughbred racing. That Randy Moss, not the Randy Moss from football, though this Randy Moss does cover football. Do I have that right? You do. All right. That's not easy. Uh, We'll have more with our interview with NBC horse racing analyst Randy Moss coming up. But first, let's look at the top stories of the week. And Mr. Novi Williams, the National Hockey League season is over. The Blues reign supreme, and there is green being generated. Yeah, the uh, merchandise sales. The Blues fans are making up for lost time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's the thing here. Droughts are good for merch sales. Absolutely. This is a team that joined the NHL in 1967. They went to the Stanley Cup final their first three years and didn't win a single game. Got swept in all three times, and they didn't come back to the Stanley Cup finals until this year, 2019. They finally won it, won Game 7 in Boston. Um, And according to Michael Rubin, who owns Fanatics, kind of the omnipresent uh, sports merchandise seller, uh, the Blues are crushing the all-time Stanley Cup merchandise record. I just love the fact that he tweeted right away. He's like, I love hockey now. It's got nothing to do with the game, it was all about the revenue being generated w- from the sales. I would imagine that hockey is not not one of the bigger sports yeah. in, in the Fanatics umbrella, um, but certainly nice for Blues fans, obviously, to uh, to get over that hump. Um, he said, that, you know, last year also a, a streak breaker. The Washington Capitals won the Stanley Cup. Blues in the early eight hours after after the Stanley Cup, uh, they were up twenty percent in terms of sales over the Washington Capitals. Do you think that Jordan Bennington has trademark Winnington yet? Mm. He should. He, def- he definitely should. I'm, I know his Twitter handy is been nasty. Yeah, been nasty. Which yeah. I, I tweeted to been nasty and the folks at Octagon last night with a video of my son. Everybody knows my son's a goaltender. Mm-hmm. Plays plays some pretty high level hockey. Saying he'd been watching been nasty, taking mental notes. Look out because he's next. Hashtag Benning- Winnington. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out what Jackson's trademark is going to be. He's Stonewall Jackson yeah, right that, now, that, that which itself. is good. Yeah, it was too easy, but I'm thinking as we go Statue up. Statue of limitations has to have expired on Stonewall Jackson. Right, right? So, so do more, yeah, exactly. <laughs> do more people know, as we move on to the next topic, do more people know Brooks Kepka? Or Jordan Bennington at this point? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, Brooks Kepka coming into the U.S. Open this week. Pebble Beach. Two-time defending champion. Um, he'd be the first golfer, I think, in over a century to win three straight U.S. Opens. Uh, and in some of the promo material Fox put out, uh, they didn't include him. He's the number one ranked golfer in the world. He he won the most recent major. Well, it's like the tease video, it's, right? It's it's amazing. Um, and he was, you know, I think appropriately miffed in, in his press conference. He said, you know, we were amazed that I wasn't in it. Just kind of shocked. They had over a year to put it out, so I don't know. <laughs> Somebody probably got fired over it or should. Yeah, I mean, again, still to this day, and we talk about him all the time, if Brooks Kepka was sitting in the empty Michael Barr chair, I would say, hey, nice to meet you, Scott Sashin. Yeah, it's funny. No idea who he is. I don't think we t- we talked about the story that I wrote a couple weeks ago, but Brooks Kepka. I asked a firm that measures popularity. How famous is Brooks Kepka? The most, cl- the closest athlete they could re- they could put to his fame, Miles Bridges. 
I didn't even know who the guy was. Yeah, me neither. He's a uh, he's a journeyman in the NBA. Last topic, someone we all do know. A Rod, guess what he's doing? A Rod, guess what he's doing? Guess what um, A Rod's doing? Coming back? No, oh, not coming back. <laughs> he is selling two of his paintings. You know, A Rod's a okay. budding art collector. He is selling a Bacchiat and a Richard Prince Basquiat, in the, yeah. Yeah, in the uh, upcoming Phillips auction sale. So uh, could collect about $6 million, but the reason is why I love Not it. Not bad. But the reasoning is why I love it, and I think we can all sort of relate. He is now engaged to Jennifer Lopez, J-Lo. Mm-hmm. And according to his art advisor, J-Lo has her own sort of art aesthetic. Oh, this is amazing. Yeah, and, and so the ones they're getting rid of, the, the two pieces are Pink Elephant, and Mustang painting, which really is of a Mustang car, you know. And, uh, you know, they're going to start collecting together, and that takes a different take. Uh, can't so you J-Lo just see J-Lo walking through, through, through like, the house? Mm, yeah, that so one's not staying. That one of the car, yeah. no. That one of the big elephant, no. And Aaron's like, I've had this for 20 It's been on my wall for 20 years. She's and, like, I don't and care. And I just guess somewhere there's like a black leather couch that she said, that's gone too. This honestly might be the most relatable Yes, a Rod. Right, right. right. So, but kudos to a Rod. He he apparently has a good eye. They're really educating themselves. They go to collections. They go to um, museums. They go to pre auctions, and he's he's got an eye for the stuff. And you can have an a Rod painting if you've got a few million bucks. I think I should get into art. Might be time for me, right? Well, your girlfriend did recently move in. Yep. Did she decide anything that you had there did not deserve to remain in oh, the apartment? Yeah. Oh, for sure. What Absolutely. went? What went? Um, I'm just curious. I, I had a big, I had a big, uh, like lettering banner That's that it. was hanging in my in my room that said, uh, "There are other Annapurnas in the lives of men." Oh God! It's a quote from Warner Herzog, um, and I loved it. I liked waking up to it every morning. I mean, it was probably I don't know, maybe 15, 20 feet long. Um, and she she nixed that one immediately. I had years. I mean, I'm going back obviously more years than you, but I had a one of those mega ESPN banners. Okay, I can't tell you how fast Kim ripped that off the wall. Yeah, like, I would that think that it. almost every couple that has moved in together has has had this conversation in some capacity. What, I'm sorry, you you intimate it was a conversation, <laughs> not a conversation. <laughs> touche, touche. But you know what? One of these days we have to really talk. We're going to get A Rod on the show. We'd I want to talk about A Rod. Well, I want to talk about art. I want to talk about real estate. Anything but baseball. Although he's sort of he's an Emmy award winning analyst as well. He's great. Whatever. On the yeah, he really he's is. Fantastic. He he's sort of like uh, Dallas Cowboys quarterback. On, yeah, Tony on, Romo. On Tony Romo. Yeah. He, mm-hmm. he really takes you inside the mind of what's going on, and you get a sense for why he was. Super successful as a hitter. Yeah, and and you also get a sense that it's early for me. I can't think of Tony Romo's name. (laughs) Anyway, now let's get to this week's interview with NBC horse racing analyst Randy Moss. He covers the Triple Crown and the Breeders' Cup, and since 1980 has covered all but two runnings of the Kentucky Derby. Randy, thanks for joining us. How you doing? I'm catching up on my sleep after the Triple Crown. Yeah, Yeah, it's your busy time of year, right? That ends. What do you do when it's over? Is there some sort of come down for you? Well, not really, because I also work for NFL Network. And as we all know, the NFL juggernaut is like 365 nowadays. So uh, when I'm not doing horse racing somewhere, and we have shows all summer and fall as well, uh, then I'm off uh, at some training camp in July or some game in uh, in the fall. So you just talked about the NFL. That is obviously the king of U.S. sports. Where, if I can go on a macro level, where do you see horse racing? Where are we in terms of affinity to the U.S. viewer? Well, where, are, where we are right now in horse racing is that other than 
the prestige events other than the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness, the Belmont, uh, to a lesser extent, the Breeders' Cup in the fall, and then pockets of, of areas in the United States where horse racing remains phenomenally successful, uh, Saratoga in upstate New York, uh, Del Mar north of San Diego, uh, Keeneland in the heart of horse country in Lexington, Kentucky, Oaklawn Park in Hot Springs, Arkansas. You have pockets where it's still tremendously popular, tremendously successful. But other than that, it's a niche sport. And it has gone from being, you know, one of the big three in the 1940s and 1950s, being baseball, boxing, and horse racing, to where it might barely register in the top ten if you ask uh, the average sports fan to rank their favorite sports nowadays. So what happened? Like you said, it's weird then for, for it to be boxing, horse racing, and baseball. Baseball, obviously, still among the top. What happened? Primarily follow the money. That can typically give you the answer for almost anything in American society. Okay, let's do that. Where, did, where was the money and where did yeah. it go? Well, it, obviously, people like to bet. Americans like to bet. In the 40s, 50s, 60s, uh, the only place to really make a legal wager in the United States was either in Las Vegas, which wasn't really mass quantity marketed back in those days, right? You had, the, you had the Brat Pack who could go to Las Vegas and some of your rich and famous, but people just didn't take junkets to Las Vegas in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And then, or you went to your racetrack, or you played, if you were in a big city, you played the illegal numbers game that organized crime ran on the street. But horse racing had a gigantic share, well over 90% of the gambling market, the legal gambling market in the United States. Now look at, look at today and look at even, you know, the 80s, 90s. You've got casinos almost on every corner. You've got lotteries in most states that came into effect in the 1970s. You've got online gaming. Now you're going to have sports betting that's going to proliferate around the country. Um, horse racing has now gone from being, you know, well over 90% of the legal gambling share to somewhere around 5 to 6% of the overall uh, gambling market in the United States. That's a, that's a huge hit. And then on top of that, you've also got the, uh, the explosion in popularity of sports on television. So there is so much competition in the entertainment marketplace that horse racing was bound to go down, but when you look at the gambling element of it, uh, it's really taken a huge hit. Speaking more on, on the gambling piece, I read that the Belmont Stakes last week, $102 million gambled on, on, on the whole set of, of races that day, which was a record for, right. for Belmont for a non-Triple Crown day. I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Kentucky Derby set its own record this year, $250 million gambled. The Preakness, $100 million, also possibly a record. Um, those numbers at least seem to imply to me that there is something hanging on regarding the popularity of at least these big ten-pole events and the gambling aspect within them. There is. I mean, we're a big sports society. We're a big day society, right, when it comes to sports. Major event-driven. Uh, a lot of people, myself included, don't pay there's not enough time in the day to pay attention to every sport all the time i don't pay attention to the nba other than just maybe looking at the standings every now and then reading some of the headlines until we get to this time of year and now i'm all over watching the warriors and the raptors uh golf 
I don't pay a lot of attention week to week, but when we get to the Masters, when we get to the U.S. Open, when we get to the British Open, yeah, sure. Uh, kind of the same thing with baseball. When we get to the postseason, I really start to follow it on a regular basis. And I think people still, and maybe even more than ever, are, are, are really clued in, keyed in to the Triple Crown. I don't want to say more than ever because it was bigger back in the, back in the day. But it's still big, the Derby, Preakness, Belmont. And it still resonates with a lot of people. We had this conversation, you know, back in 2015, and then again last year when American Pharaoh won the Triple Crown, and then Justify did it again. Is there right. a is there an argument to be made that that that, that bre- breaking that Triple Crown drought and then having another one happen so quickly afterwards might have been a disservice to to horse racing in general? In that, you know, now when you get to years like this year when the Preakness rolls around and suddenly there's no chance of a Triple Crown. That, that, that people may be shutting off more than they, they were in the past? Absolutely. Absolutely. And they were saying that in the 1970s, by the way. Hmm. Uh, there was a Triple Crown winner in 1948 named Citation. Then there was a gap between 1948 until Secretariat swept the Triple Crown in 1973, a 25-year gap. And there were a lot of horses that came close during that period of time that just couldn't seal the deal in the Belmont, similar to what we saw with American Pharaoh. And following Secretariat in 73, in rapid succession, you had Seattle Slough in 77. You had Affirmed the very next year in 78. And then you almost had one in 79 with the worst name Spectacular Bid. And by the time they got to 79, when Spectacular Bid won the Derby and the Preakness, uh, people were writing that it was kind of ho-hum hmm. when he was going for the Triple Crown in the Belmont. There was such electricity, such excitement around American Pharaoh in 2015. I mean, that was a 37-year drought. I was there for that. And no, yeah. yeah, I mean, it was amazing, wasn't it? I mean, I I haven't been around that kind of electricity for a sustained period of time when that horse crossed the finish line. It gave me and a new I've appreciation to- for horse racing, for sure. I mean, seeing people, you know, in tears afterwards, et cetera. You know, it, it certainly yeah, gave me a I new mean- appreciation for the sport. I mean, I've been to Super Bowls, Olympics. You know, I haven't seen a crowd reaction quite like that. It wasn't the same when Justify swept the Triple Crown last year. It was still exciting. But was it the same as American Pharaoh? No. Hmm. Uh, so I do think that it, it really built up over a period of time uh, before we got to 2015. And it's going to be almost impossible to replicate that in the near future. It's funny. Li- listening to you talk about the, the gambling and the history of gambling within horse racing, you know, Scott and I, have we have – you know, people from all different sports on the podcast, almost every different sport, the executives are all saying right now, we have a tremendous opportunity with legal sports gambling, right? It is, it is this thing, whether it's baseball, football, basketball, lacrosse, women's golf, every sport seems to think, oh, there's this big opportunity now in this new thing. It sounds like, unfortunately for horse racing, it's not really an opportunity in the same way that, that, that it is for all these other sports, just because it's been the history of the sport. It might be an opportunity for horse racing in this in this respect. Uh, the economics of horse racing, in terms of the taxation on betters, is higher than any other form of wagering. Hmm. It doesn't have to be that high necessarily, but the sport has been very resistant to change it. Every dollar that's bet on a horse race in the United States, the average hold, the average take that the racetrack uh, takes from that dollar is 20 cents. Wow. 20%. Uh, when, you're, when you're looking at Vegas, and you, it's typically like, you know, when you're playing a slot, it varies. But 
can be around 5%, 4%, maybe 6 7% in some places where it's high. Sports betting is expected to be about the same, although some of the fees to the leagues could raise it to as much as 10%. Mm-hmm. But it's still much cheaper to make a bet uh, than it is in horse racing. And that's something that is probably, if sports betting really takes off in this country, and, and who thinks it won't, that's something that the sport is going to now be forced to address in order to stay competitive. It's something they should have addressed a long time ago, but in typical horse racing fashion, they've dragged their feet. But now they might be taking kicking and screaming into the era where they got to be competitive price-wise. We're chatting with NBC horse racing analyst Randy Moss, and you say they, they have to be kept. They have been resistant. Who's the they? Who are the principal they's? Well, the they's in horse racing, unfortunately, there's no league office. Uh, it's a little like boxing. Every state has its own uh, racing commission. It's just the assortment of states that make the rules for each individual state. Um, and there has been a resistance because gambling funds racetracks. It's about 75% of a racetrack's revenue is derived directly hmm. from gambling, and only about 25% from admission fees and from concessions and seating and things like that. And it's the money bet that directly funds the purse money that the horses run for and that the owners uh, and trainers and jockeys make their living off of. So what are the analytics behind me telling somebody, if you lower the 20% of each dollar bet, more people will bet? Ultimately, the pie will be bigger for you. There are many studies that indicate that that's exactly what would happen. The more money you put in circulation, then the more money that's likely to be bet right back through the windows. I mean, think about it. If you've if 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 people walk into a racetrack uh, on any given day um, in, intending to wager, and let's just use a number. This is low, but let's say a hundred thousand dollars. Collectively, they bring a hundred thousand dollars to the track to bet. They walk out at the end of the day. They bet all hundred thousand dollars. Twenty thousand of that one hundred remains behind. Okay. Now, suppose it was only ten. So that's. That's 10000 more that those people would have in their pockets as the day progressed. They're there to bet. They would probably bet that 10000 all right back through the windows. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the economic studies indicate that there is definitely a link between increased handle, increased betting, and the economics of the takeout. Uh, but racetracks have been reluctant to do that because sometimes it means taking a short-term hit in order to have a long-term gain, and a lot of people are too short-sighted to to let that happen. Randy, you named a whole bunch of horses earlier throughout the years, and I am not a big horse racing aficionado, but I recognize all of them. I I remember it. I can tell you a little (laughs) something about it. But I don't know anything about the horses now, and therefore I can tell you my soon-to-be 10-year-old son has never been to a track, has, sh- right. has shown zero interest in horse racing. We'll never know who Justify is. We'll never is. know who Justify is. How does the sport make me a fan, one, or more importantly for the sport, how do they make my son a fan? Well, there, there are probably two different aspects to your, uh, to your question. The first aspect would be the easiest one to identify and probably the toughest one to solve, and that is to keep horses racing for a longer period of time, uh, right, and 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 you know, give them a little more name recognition with the general public. 
Uh, wouldn't it be nice if, you know, if American Pharaoh could have raced against Justify, let's say, or, or something along those lines? But unfortunately, in the world, not just the United States, in the world of thoroughbred racing, when it comes to uh, breeding the tail wags of the dog, the breeding, the breeding of racehorses is much, much more lucrative than racing horses. For example, take American Pharaoh. Um, the, the most a horse has ever won in their career in the world in thoroughbred racing, racing career on the racetrack, is just a little less than $20 million, which is a lot of money. When American Pharaoh was retired to stud, okay, he was bred to about 200 mares in his first year. Uh, each of those breedings was running over $100,000 on average. So that's $20 million that American Pharaoh netted in one year, one year. Of, stud, of, of stud duty. One year. So there is very little uh, economic incentive for horses, for owners, with a horse the stature of an American Pharaoh, to keep them running on the racetrack when all the money is sitting there waiting in the stud barn. Yeah, to make it to make that applicable to a listener, how about it'd be, it'd be like saying, well, LeBron James could make so much more money off the basketball court than on the court. Why keep playing? Well, but in the but in the in the situation of LeBron James, there would be you know there would not be that much of a negative for him to continue playing four or five more years and then make his money off the court after that. With racehorses, there is always the risk of what we would refer to as catastrophic injury, and even though those horses are insured when they get to the level of an American Pharaoh. Uh, every time they put them out there on the racetrack, there is at least a very small risk that something will happen to them, and the owners and the breeders are increasingly not willing to accept that risk. We're speaking with Randy Moss, horse racing analyst at NBC. And, and Randy, you just said and talked about a little the, the catastrophic injury and right. the risk there for horses. I think for a lot of people who are not horse racing fans, uh, they may have caught wind, you know, nationally stories right now about Santa Anita racetrack out in California, one of the more prestigious yep. tracks in horse racing. Uh, I believe they're now, the, the death toll now, 29 horses since December 26th have died either in races or in training at the track. Um, it seems like a, a huge number to me. I was actually surprised to learn that, you know, for Santa Anita, the, it's really not, at least at this point, not a, not a crazy number yet. Um, is, is, are people blowing that out of proportion? Kind of how do you view what's going on at Santa Anita right now in terms of health, both for horses and for the sport itself? Yeah, no, I don't think they're blowing it out of proportion at all, really. But there's a point that needs to be made. Uh, it, it was uh, much higher, uh, at least double, maybe even more than double, the regular injury rate at Santa Anita from the period of mid-December to late December when Santa Anita began their 2018-2019 season until mid-March when they decided to suspend racing in order to try to get a handle on exactly what was going on with these, with these horses. They had an unseasonably rainy winter that created problems with the racing surface the horses were running over. The surfaces in Southern California are designed for Southern California weather, for sunny Southern California. And unfortunately, with the record rainfall they were getting over the winter, um, the racetrack wasn't holding up very well in those, uh, in those circumstances. And it was causing uneven spots in the racetrack 
that was one of the primary problems causing the increased injury rate. They wanted to get a hold of it. And they did. They, they, they really did a lot of things uh, behind the scenes into the racetrack. What did they do change-wise? Well, they, they, unfortunately, what they had done to begin with before the meeting started in, in December, they had kind of chased away the guy uh, who had for a long time been in charge of taking care of the racing surface. They brought him back in March. Uh, they did a lot of scientific tests on the racetrack and made some changes to the racetrack in order to make it safer. Secondarily, they also instituted a lot of safeguards in supervision to make sure that not only in races in the afternoon, but in workouts in the morning and training in the morning, that every horse that went onto the racetrack and came off of the racetrack uh, were being watched by veterinarians for any signs of injury, any signs of soreness, any signs of lameness, uh, better pre-race examinations before horses are allowed to run. And all that had an impact because once they started racing again with all these safeguards and a better racing surface in place, it stabilized. And now from that period of time when they started racing again in late March until now, it's been pretty much either normal or below normal, the injury rate. But unfortunately now there's such a microscope on Santa Anita because of what happened earlier in the year that any sort of, of, of death, including a heart attack at the finish line, which we had last week, is going gonna, is gonna to really uh, you know, get the animal rights people up in arms. And I can understand everyone loves that they're beautiful animals, um, the people that take care of them. Um, you know, they, have, uh, they have a great affinity for them, and they do everything they can to try to take care of them. But unfortunately in the sport, the occasional – accident is going to happen and now they're sort of caught between a rock and a hard place and for re- for listeners who don't know i mean i think you people hear wow a horse died at the track and they think that you know mid- mid-race collapse keeled over you know ambulance had to come out or tractor take the horse away what, what is when, when when you read that a horse died at the track in training or in racing what does that typically look like is that just an injury that the horse walks away from and then is diagnosed later on and, and they and they realize its fate? Is that a kind of a collapsing on the track? What does it look like in practice? It can be, unfortunately. It's, it's, it's very seldom a collapsing on the track, unless you're talking about a horse that, that suffered a heart attack like, like we had uh, last week there. Most of the time, it's a horse that, that suffers uh, uh, some sort of a fracture to its leg, That'll cause it to pull up during a race or during a workout. And they'll put the cast on immediately. They'll take it back to the barn. They'll do all sorts of x-rays and all that. And believe it or not, I mean, with racehorses, they're such big, robust animals, right? You're talking about an 1,100-pound, in most cases, animal. They are unbelievably fragile. You can go in and have, like Barbaro, for example, that broke down the Kentucky Derby winner that got hurt in the Preakness. You can go in and you can surgically repair these injuries. But the problem with racehorses is once a horse gets out of surgery, he has to immediately be able to place a full load on the injured leg. Mm-hmm. Horses that weigh a thousand pounds are supported by four legs that are no bigger around the bones, the major bones in the leg than a human forearm. And all four legs have to equally handle the weight. If a horse begins to shift his weight off an injured leg, then the other legs start to go. 
And that is a very excruciatingly painful, sad situation. Uh, you can't immobilize a horse like a human. You can't say, okay, you got to lay down for a month. If horses lay down for an extended period of time, their circulatory system can't handle it, and they die. You can say, okay, support them in a sling. You can't do that because that will create undue pressure on a horse's intestines, and the horse will die. So really the only humane alternative when you get an injury of a certain type is to just put the horse to sleep because it's too painful otherwise, uh, and there's really no way, uh, no logical way for the horse to recover from it without excruciating pain. Mm-hmm. And, and Santa Anita, owned by the Stronach family, which owns Pimlico as well, um, the, the Breeders' Cup is coming up in November, as you said, another one of these huge events within horse racing. Is this affecting the business at Santa Anita? Are people staying away because of kind of the, the gaudy death numbers that they're hearing? I know Gavin Newsom has come out recently and called for a halt in racing altogether. Is this affecting the business of the racetrack? You know, I haven't seen numbers uh, that would indicate one way or the other. That's that's one part of the element of Santa Anita that I don't know that much about right now. But I would have to think logically that it would have to have had some effect. And you're talking about the Breeders' Cup in the fall. The Breeders' Cup now has a very interesting and very difficult decision to make because I mean, people are making uh, hotel reservations, they're making uh, airline reservations, making travel plans to go to Santa Anita the first week of November. Does the Breeders' Cup really want to gamble that, you know, something might happen that would cause Santa Anita to have to close, at least temporarily, and would disrupt the Breeders' Cup? Um, The alternative would be to run it at Churchill Downs in Louisville, Kentucky, which is about the only track in the country because of the Kentucky Derby, because of their experience at handling big events, they can just be plug-and-play and can say pretty quickly, okay, we'll take the Breeders' Cup. We don't have to make any infrastructure changes or anything like that. It's been a very hot topic of conversation in thoroughbred racing right now, whether the Breeders' Cup should just right now in June say, okay, we're moving the Breeders' Cup from Santa Anita. Hmm. They say right now they're keeping it at Santa Anita, but I can promise you that's been a, a very um, – a, a very heated topic of conversation within the Breeders' Cup organization. Interesting. And, and, and before we let you go, let's lighten it up a little bit, uh, get, get off the Santa Anita <laughs> topic for a second. Sure. Um, if you were, I mean, there's no commissioner, obviously, but if, if Churchill Downs called you tomorrow and said, listen, Randy, we're going to put you in charge for a day. We want to attract more people to the racetrack, to horse racing. What's one or two kind of big initiatives you would put in place, kind of new new way of thinking or maybe new technology, something that you think can, can help horse racing moving forward in terms of attracting, attracting new fans? Less racing. Hmm. Right now, I mean, in thoroughbred racing, less is more. Um, for example, the, the most successful race meet in America right now is Saratoga in upstate New York. Um, they average 27,000 fans a day which is a little more than the population of Saratoga Springs, the town in which the racetrack is located. It's phenomenally successful. And all of those tracks that I mentioned to you um, earlier, Saratoga, Keeneland, Del Mar, Oakland, to a lesser extent, all those racetracks are what we would call boutique meetings. They have very short meetings. Saratoga opens in late July. They run basically until Labor Day. And that's even an extended meet from what it was 10, 15 years ago. When you have short meetings, there's a, you know, there's an excitement level. People, you know, people know that it's not going to be there for long. We got to get out there before it goes away. 
it creates a lot more excitement, creates a lot more buzz. Unfortunately, at too many racetracks in America, like Gulfstream Park, for example, in Miami, uh, they run almost year-round. And people lose that sense of urgency to get out to the racetrack. It just becomes, you know, ho-hum, they're running again this weekend. You need to have a framework sort of like you have in Europe, where you have these short, very short racing meets, uh, and really keep the excitement level going and, and have, uh, you know, have all the races sort of synchronized, all the major races at these various meets around the country. Randy, I have an idea. You had Tiger play Phil in that one-off. Rather yeah. than have to go through all this, if the money is really there for spectacular events and we have all these sort of regular broadcast networks, new broadcast networks, uh, digital streamers, the money might be there for it. Let me give me the best horses. Don't race all the time. Just give me the two best head-to-head and see what kind of money that could generate from sponsors and fans. It probably would, except match racing is what you're talking about, head-to-head, one-on-one, uh, doesn't typically generate that much in terms of betting because the payoffs are too low. You only have two options, right? One horse is going to win or the other horse is going to win. In paramutual racing, the larger the field, like the Kentucky Derby 20-horse field, the higher the payoffs are because the money's spread out among all the horses and the more attractive it is to betters. That's, I understand where you're coming from. We need to create more major events in horse racing. Uh, and those are exciting, but you can't have a regular diet of those because they don't do well enough in terms of betting, All right. betting revenue. Randy Moss, NBC horse racing analyst at NBC. Thanks so much for enlightening us. <laughs> Take care, guys. Scott, that was a great conversation. So much there that I did not know about. One of the big things that stuck out to me, there seems to be this kind of perverse set of incentives right now for owners of elite horses. You know, you heard Randy say, one of the things that might attract more people and maybe one of the reasons why back in the 70s everybody knew these horses' names is that the great horses now, they don't race that much. And the truth is that, that there's so much risk. He talked about Santa Anita. There's so much risk right now of a great horse getting hurt and having to be put down versus the millions and millions of dollars that an elite race horse can make at the stud fees right now. Yeah, I just don't know what the answer is. And talking with experts, they're like... like Randy, he doesn't know either. He's just not sure. I mean, okay, race less. That's fine. Make people want it more. Does that make my kids say, Dad, let's go to the track? I don't, I don't think so. Does it make him say, man, you're, I think you're too young to remember the old OTBs? Like I would, every now yeah, and then. When I, I, I never you know, set foot in one. You sort of had your, your dirty food-stained undershirt crowd in the OTB, which I found kind of cool. So I always kind of wanted to go there more than the track. I'm, you have the big event feel again around the majors. Maybe you could have those one-offs if the if the pay is hard, uh, big enough. But outside of that, what what, what do you get? If, if sports betting is helping everybody else, but not horse racing. That's a tough position. Yeah, to be I thought in. that was an interesting one. Also, you know, every executive we sit down with on this podcast talks yeah. about how great sports betting is going to be from an engagement standpoint. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem like horse racing executives can say necessarily that exact same thing because betting has been so central to their sport in the past and is also kind of one of the reasons why it may be losing popularity. My goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since kids. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike. We have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business of Sports, the number of the week. All right, number of the week, Evan. You ready? I'm ready. All right, I'm going 22, one and three quarters. 22, one and three quarters. The length of the long jump champion in feet uh, at the NCAA trials last week. Almost. Okay. Finally, college basketball 
and I only do this because obviously it's a big money game, but they're moving the three-point line back mm. to the international distance. And that's shorter. That's still shorter that's than NBA? Still or? shorter than okay. NBA, but longer, obviously, than where it was, where the entire game of college basketball had become teams chucking three-pointers. I mean, there's no Sounds like real the M- basketball. <laughs> yeah, yes and no in that the game has changed further. That's the analytics of which shots make sense, but they got to be able to make them. Like sure. if, they start, if they miss these at a rate I think many of these kids will miss, then it will no longer behoove the team to mm-hmm. take as many. That's the point. In the NBA, these guys are so good, they can knock them. Like Steph Curry, you could put another five feet. It wouldn't matter. Sure. That's why he's changed the game. But... What's the impact on the game, then the appeal, then the television, as we trickle down? What's the overall effect to the money of college basketball? Yeah, interesting. I mean, I would imagine there's you know guys who work on the, the, the floor at, at arenas around the country right now that are like, oh, retaping the line. Oh, man, I got to repaint <laughs> this thing. Um, but yeah, the, great googly mowgly. College basketball has made a number of changes, certainly, you know, in terms of what gets fouled, what gets called as a foul recently. They're trying to open the game up a bit. Um, I do wonder what effect this will have and if people will even notice. There's a chance that the, the fans don't even notice. You've been listening to the Bloomberg Business of Sports. We're here each and every week at the same time, plus online as a podcast. You can catch that Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. I'm Scott Soshnick on the Twitter at Soshnick. I'm Evan Novi Williams at Novi underscore Williams. Thanks for joining us. Please tune in next week when we speak with Michael Eisner, who used to run Disney. Heard of it? Yeah, I know. yeah. Michael Eisner, he's, by the way, owns a soccer team. Mm. Like, like everybody else wants these days. Yeah, wants seriously. to own a European <laughs> soccer team. Uh, are you excited for Michael Eisner? I am very excited. I can't wait to good, hear what he says talk. about media, yeah, soccer and media. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world. <laughs> 